Amen. Amen. As you're seated, uh, this is our series, Famously Unfamiliar, and it's looking at texts in the Bible that are well-known and often quoted, uh, but their context and maybe their implications are cheapened by not really being familiar with their, where they really come from and how they can be applied. And we're looking at a text, uh, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. That's often quoted before Super Bowls. The only thing I've noted is it's quoted by members on both teams. <laughs> it, I know that is quoted by people who are fighting wars on different sides. And the context of this verse is in the prophet Isaiah, uh, and it's a passage where he is speaking a promise where God's people had actually experienced God raising up foreign armies to fight against them because of their sin. And God now is forecasting a day in which his people will so be at peace with him that also they will be at peace with all of their enemies. So uh, we're going to read it from verse 17 in the New King James, and then I want to just read you the passage it comes from. It says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Now I want you just to see the context of this. We're going to start at verse 11. Uh, and here is God in this passage. Do you can put verse 11 up from the text? This is the passage where God is so tenderly speaking to his people. And here's how God addresses them. And this is after an exile that they've not yet gone into. This is how much God loves us. He plans the comfort that we need that's going to take place. And he announces it to us even before we experience the storm. So he says, oh, storm-battered city, trouble and desolate, I will rebuild you with precious jewels and make your foundations from lapis lazuli. I will make your towers of sparkling rubies, your gates of shining gems, and your walls of precious stones. I will teach all your children, and they will enjoy great peace. You will be secure under a government that is just and fair. Your enemies will stay far away. You will live in peace and terror will not come near. If any nation comes to fight you, it is not because I sent them. And whoever attacks you will go down in defeat. I have created the blacksmith who fans the coals beneath the forge and makes the weapons of destruction. And I have created the armies that destroy. But in that coming day, no weapon turned against you will succeed. And you will silence every voice raised up to accuse you. These benefits are enjoyed by the servants of the Lord. Their vindication will come from me. I, the Lord, have spoken. What a promise. <laughs> And we're looking at the, the kind of exclamation promise at the end of a whole bunch of wonderful promises. No weapon formed against you will prosper and your vindication will come from me. If you know a lot about Isaiah, Isaiah, sometimes people say there had to be two Isaiahs. And I believe they're totally wrong if they think that. But one reason they think that uh, is because uh, the first half of Isaiah up to 39, he makes all these denouncements and really hard things. And then in chapters 40 to 66, it's so bright and glorious and people think, well, it has to be two different people. 
But also they say that chapters, there's so much accuracy historically in Isaiah that it had to be written much later than what it was claimed. Uh, the only problem with this is there was this uh, little sheep herder uh, in uh, the Qumran Valley uh, caves and he threw a rock and he hit some clay jars and they found Isaiah's scrolls and clearly they preceded all of these events. So it's just amazing witness to the sovereignty of God and to foretelling future prophecy because it absolutely locked in the dates of this and it also it pre-committed the modernists who want to sneer at the Bible because they already said this is an accurate prediction of historical events. <laughs> so they couldn't say, oh no, it wasn't. <laughs> but one reason I think there sometimes seem to be two Isaiahs is the message. A lot of it seems like stuff we could write on a coffee cup or put on our walls. You know, uh, those that wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. I love that. I, I don't so much like the part where God says, uh, because of your corruption, when you pray to me, I'm not gonna listen to you. I hate your worship and your new moon festivals. Learn to do good. You're sick from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, chapter one. And, and so there's kind of a dilemma that we have in looking at this verse. Uh, because you kind of wonder, you know, if we cherry pick all the comfortable verses and assume that they belong to us, uh, we can really apply the Bible very presumptuously. Just like two sides of the same war, quote this verse. No weapon formed against us will prosper. Um, uh, the reality is Isaiah, according to the Talmud, this is not in the Bible, so you know, it's not absolutely certain, but according to the Talmudic reference, he was sawn in two, not by foreign peoples but by Jews who didn't like his prophecies. It's, it's kind of a conceit in my own mind that I just am gonna receive everything in the Bible and love it. Because that's never been the history of God's people. Jesus in Matthew 23 said to the people of his day, he said, you decorate the prophets' tombs and you honor them, but your fathers put these prophets to death and you're just like them. <laughs> You know, it's one thing for me to assume that, oh, scripture, oh, I'm all in agreement with it. Everything in the Bible is just like sweet bonbons that I love. <laughs> and I just wonder if some of the Jews who were sawing Isaiah in two, and Hebrews 11 says some people were sawing in two. That's another reference. I wonder if while they were sawing him in two, they were saying, and no weapon formed against us will prosper. We got to get rid of this nasty old prophet. Uh, so the first thing I, I just want to say is we got to beware of presumption. I've got to beware of presumption that this verse is for my protection because you know what? I, I am such a messed up person that I actually may sometimes wield the weapon that is being used against one of God's instruments. Let me tell you a story, and you may not want me to be your pastor anymore after this story, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, it did happen in my first 60 days of being a pastor. Uh, there was a godly elder's mom. Now this, this elder in my church was almost 80 years old himself and his mom was about 100. And she was in the process of dying a slow, difficult death from recurrent pneumonia. The pneumonia would take over and she's a, she was a very godly woman herself, just quoted scripture in all of her laborious breathing. So pneumonia would advance, then she'd get some antibiotics and it would retreat and, um, and she'd be like, oh, I wanna see Jesus, I hope this takes me. But then uh, the, the, uh, 
she'd recovered a bit and then the pneumonia had come back. It was like this wild slide. And in the first 60 days of my pastorate, uh, I probably visited her 40 of the 60 days because there were just that many crises. I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm exaggerating. But finally, and her prayers were answered and with scripture on her lips, she entered into the presence of her savior. And uh, as I got close to her and I was uh, close to her son, um, this godly elder, she had welcomed me into her circle of love and the funeral was going to take place at our church building. But the family, the rest of her family wanted her longtime pastor to read the scripture. I'd do everything else, but he'd come and read the scripture and maybe make a couple other remarks. The only problem with that is, uh, I was fresh out of seminary and this pastor was pastoring a church that was of the wrong tribe. I'd never talked to him, but I knew he was a heretic. And I really felt I couldn't share a platform with this guy. I'd never talked to him, but I said, I was afraid of infection by association. And so I was a total jerk. I, um, intense wounding happened in the middle of this family because of my convictions at a time of their grief and my reluctance. And uh, in the end, uh, I negotiated a kind of restrainer on this aged pastor. Now he seemed really old to me then, he probably was about 55. (laughs) But I negotiated a restrainer upon him and I said, okay, he can be up on the platform with me, but he can only read scripture. I don't want him saying anything else. And when he read scripture, my wife, who I'd kind of led in this, but she reminded me this morning, she says, Bob, like you were up there sniggering at him while he was reading scripture because he said the wrong thing right before he read it. He said, um, listen, in order that you may hear the word of God. Well, that's not right. Listen, that you may hear the word of God? No, listen to the word of God. That's code word, that you don't think it's all the word of God. So that was my, my snickering and, I, and, and that was my disposition. And so I was a jerk to this godly, nearly 100 year old woman, her name was Carolyn Goodrich, to her pastor. And I was wielding weapons that were doing damage. Um, and so now I, in the resurrection, when I see Carolyn Goodrich, I've got to own it and say, I'm just thinking of this, hey Carolyn, I am so sorry that after you died, I was a jerk to your pastor. And I know what she'll say, I just have a vision of it. She's gonna say, I didn't know you did that, but um, he's, he's right here, let's go see him. He just happens to live a whole lot nearer the throne than your mansion is. <laughs> I, I was fighting on the side of Christ, I thought, but through my pride, I was not really surrendered to what he was doing and I was engaging in friendly fire. And with my tongue, I really, without a conversation with this man, um, I, I slandered him. But I was coming out of a wartime mentality that had fought all those battles. And I had some of that experience in myself with places where they did church, but they weren't really teaching the word. And so I had this kind of hypervigilance. You know, if you've been tra- traumatized, you're hypervigilant. You're ready for a fight whenever it comes. Like you're just ready to punch first, ask questions later. Well, uh, a few years into that first pastorate, I had someone do the same thing to me. And it was in the midst of that, and and they did some serious damage and wounding to people in the church with me and the fabric of the unity of that church, and it hurt. 
And it was only when it was happening to me that the Holy Spirit held up a mirror to me that I could see that that was just exactly what I'd done to some other people. And actually I'd done it to some people and, and even spoken to some people who served on the faculty of the seminary that I attended. So out of that, God brought me to repentance where I actually wrote a letter to the president of the seminary, Sam Logan, and I just, I just confessed my sin and I said, in God's providence, I just see that I was so messed up. I was, I was dangerous. Uh, and uh, like he gave me an immediate phone call, thanked me, told me that this continues to go on. People like just jumping, saying, well, they, you know, if, you, if they say that, the camel's nose is under the tent and there's a whole trajectory going on. And, and he said, this letter is so timely, your repentance, can I share it with the whole faculty? And I was like, sure. And in fact, he, uh, Sam Logan recently wrote a great book and it's mainly on the topic of what he says is the number one sin inside Christian circles committed to the Bible. And he says the sin of just slandering other people. Uh, that is, by the way, the weapon Isaiah mentions. Do you note that? Every tongue which rises against you in judgment really is speaking of the accusation of others. So, you know, we're often very aware of where we've been slandered, and if you're living faithfully for Christ, I don't know how you're gonna get through it without being slandered. It's gonna happen. People are gonna not understand what you believe. Uh, but it's really sad when it happens inside the church, but the saddest thing is when we participate ourselves. I've wept real tears this week just thinking about how I'd been part of that whole narrative. I have. That is so un-Jesus shaped. And this passage just first says, don't, don't be presumptuous. <laughs> when you say no weapon formed against me will prosper, watch out. You may be the one wielding the weapon against those for whom Christ died and loves. Hippocratic oath first, right, is first do no harm. <laughs> it's the same for spiritual work. But the second thing I want you to see here is um, this verse assumes that you and I will be in a war reality. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, now if you're not, you're not gonna be part of this war. Um, but if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it assumes war. And again, I gotta wonder, what did Isaiah think when he was being sawn in two? It's like, hey God, I wrote that verse down that you gave me, no weapon formed against you will prosper. It sure seems like the saw is prospering. This is not an immunity verse. This is actually an expectation verse to say there are gonna be weapons formed against us. We just celebrated uh, that wonderful Valentine's Day, right? You know, the, you know the story of St. Valentine? The accounts in history uh, say his real story is he was martyred, he was killed for his faith on February the 14th in the year 269 in Rome. He was put on trial because he uh, was a Christian pastor and he would uh, illegally, because Rome outlawed Christianity, he would solemnize Christian couples' wedding vows and give them Christian marriage ceremonies. And he was put on trial for his Christian faith and the judge uh, who was up there sentencing him um, had a blind daughter. And uh, Valentine asked the judge, he says, Could, would you mind if I met your daughter so I can pray for her, that God might heal her? And what history tells us, the account tells us that Valentine laid hands on the daughter of this judge and she was healed from her congenital blindness. 
So the judge didn't sentence him. Days later, Valentine was arrested for evangelism and he was beheaded on February 14th. So that's a cute little romantic story to put in your Valentine note. (laughs) And later they uncovered uh, notes that Valentine wrote in encouragement to this girl, this judge's daughter that had been healed, uh, signed your Valentine (laughs) from the beheaded martyr. (laughs) Now, we're in a wartime situation, but that's always been true if you are a soldier of Christ. And what this verse is meant to do is not to give you and me a sense of the immunity that we'll never have any uh, fiery darts come against us or really, really hard traumas and situations. But this verse is meant to inform our operating system with how secure we really have it because God has a picture of the end. And this is a, this is a beautiful picture of the return home. Heaven is, is filling the earth in the resurrection. This is of just our invulnerability. And God is saying, while we're suffering the slings and arrows and all the weapons that can be raised against us, he wants us to have, to operate, not out of the operating system of fear, but out of faith. Um, Fear will make us too timid to love, but love can drive out fear, and a fearlessness is so important. If we're gonna have the courage of our convictions, we need to carry fearlessness with us for Christ in every conversation. I think that's, it's the reason we chicken out in some conversations. We need more courageous boldness. Uh, Paul says in Philippians 1.27, he says, stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And this is a sign to them of their destruction, but that you will be saved. The fact that we're just calm and fearless That is so important in our witness. So, you know, Liz and I are headed to Zimbabwe later this week, and yeah, uh, I I ask a lawyer to help us update our will because it's way out of date, and I'm thinking we're both going over there, you never know, you know, but, but we also bought a return ticket, and we also know that God has called us to it. Here's the reality. There's no such thing as a risk to you and me if God tells us to do it. We call things risk, and we should just call them obedience. Because if God has called us to do something, even if it makes us vulnerable, it's just obeying the one who has promised to take care of everything. When, when we're operating in faith, this is the way we will live our lives. And the fact that there are gonna be some enemies is just a confirmation of what God said. So the next thing that strikes me from this verse is, we've gotta know the fight is God's, not ours. You know, there's a verse that is quoted, I think, again, kind of dangerously. I don't know whether you've heard this verse, but it's, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Have you heard that verse? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The way I just quoted that verse, resist the devil and he will flee from you, it's not true. That, that, uh, that verse is actually really dangerous to quote it that way. You know why that's out of context? Because there's a little phrase that precedes that verse in James 4, 7, and the first part of that verse is, submit to God. If I'm resisting the devil and I have not yet first come to the place where I have submitted to God, 
I may be bringing all kinds of things into that situation that God can't support. Resist the devil and he will flee from you is preceded by the most important command and that is make sure you've submitted to God. If you submit to God and you're in surrender to God and you've gotten rid of anything that God needs to oppose in your life and then you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. But don't think you and I can have success in resisting the devil unless we've submitted to God. Because only through God being in me and me being in alignment with God will I be able to resist the evil one in God's power. In other words, don't try to resist the devil alone. (laughs) Don't attempt it alone. He's greater than you and me. He's more powerful. But he's not greater than the one who is in us. And so we have to open our life to the presence of God that comes upon us only when we are surrendered. Promises without prayerful surrender can become godless assumptions of our own flesh. Let me just say that again. Promises of God, even this one, Isaiah 54, 17. Promises of God without prayerful surrender can become godless assumptions of our own flesh. Now, you know what James says about submission to God? One of the key marks of submission to God is humility. God gives grace to the humble. It says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Pride is a very subtle sin in us. Um, Other people can detect it. It's kind of like our BO or our bad breath. We have trouble detecting it. We need a spouse for that. But we're really good at detecting it in other people. And humility's tricky because the moment I say, hey, I'm being pretty humble, as soon as I notice it, it vanishes because I start to be proud of it. So it's very hard to walk in humility. Pride is so subtle. And we're never more in danger of pride than when we're right. In fact, I just say this, we're never more dangerous than when we're right in wielding weapons. And, and since I think I'm right all the time, because if I didn't think I was right, I'd probably change course, I hope. Since I think I'm right all the time, which is a really prideful thing to say, but since I think I'm right all the time, and I do, I'm always in danger of pride. What I would say this verse teaches us is something I don't really want to understand fully. And it's this, a humble person with error in some things about how they live or what they believe, um, is in better shape than a person who has more things right in their beliefs in life but is living in pride. I want to say that again. A humble person with error in some things is in better shape and will learn and God will lead them. They're in better shape than a proud person who has right doctrine and behavior but is actually opposed to God because do you realize what this verse says? It says that God has to oppose the proud. <laughs> It doesn't say the proud person who's wrong. It just says God has to oppose the proud. That's how much he hates pride. So a person who has wrong beliefs and behaviors but has humility, they can be corrected by the Spirit. But a person with mostly right doctrines and no humility will be resisted by the Lord that he professes to serve. That is, I could just sit on that forever and think about it. And the way God ultimately fights this battle And the way that God disarms weapons is ultimately, it's the weapon of the gospel. I want you to see that, that the way God fights the weapons is the gospel. And this is what's so important. And this is why um, Jesus didn't just 
zap me in my first 60 days of a pastor and say, I don't need that kind of representation. We can just take that person off my team, off the planet maybe, is because Jesus never opposes the person who wields the weapon. He opposes the weapon. Because Jesus is so powerful, what he does is he wants to take the weapon out of the weapon wielder's hands and then recruit the wielder of that weapon to his team. Do you know what an amazing, an amazing power that is? There has never, the only you know, military might and force in our, in our broken world that sometimes is necessary, um, there's never been a weapon designed to do anything but destroy the enemy. Can you imagine a, a military that was able to actually remove the weapons but also change the hearts of the opposing army so that they leapt across the line of, of fight and joined the other side? That's what the gospel does. And it does it through powerful, powerful grace. Jesus took really the only weapon that could really hurt us and that is the weapon of our sin and, and the judgment that it deserved. And he took it upon himself instead of us as a substitute for us, though he didn't deserve any of it and we deserved all of it. And because he did that, that is the gospel grace that is actually able to disarm our opposition to God. The great task of the Bible is really to bring us, to bring as many image bearers and, and human beings as possible to the place where they know that they are a beloved child of God. Not just know that it's true, but come to an experience of it. It is so powerful, it's such a powerful difference between knowing that I am a child of God is a truth and knowing I am a child of God is a reality. <laughs> if I just know that I am a child of God is a truth, but I, it hasn't become real to me, then it, it's, what is real to me, my insecurities, my sense of having to somehow pull up a resume of strength in my own power will, will be more real than that statement, and I won't live free, and I won't live victorious, and I won't live able to really love people out of the overflow. Uh, when, unless what is true becomes real, what is real for me, my insecurities, my fears, uh, that will be my truth and I will live that out. And so we need God's help so that this becomes real. We need the Holy Spirit in our, in our lives to show us that that's true. And we need to continually prize and treasure this gospel in our own experience. The battle of our hearts is really a gospel battle. And sometimes we get turned aside because uh, we're fighting the wrong war. I just talked to somebody, their child went to a, a Christian college and they're struggling with a little bit of buyer's regret maybe because in this particular Christian college, unbeknownst to this child who's just a lover of Jesus, they never heard before that outsiders are enemies. We gotta, we gotta fight this cultural war and we gotta, we gotta change the culture by fighting against those who are, who are speaking against Christian values and we gotta contend for Christian values and we gotta win back the culture in what's called the culture war. And it had never occurred to this young person that People who didn't know Jesus were the enemies and we gotta fight them over in the arena of ideas and values. Folks, I'm a conscientious objector when it comes to the culture war and the fight of the culture war because I don't believe that's the battle that Jesus fought. He didn't fight the culture war, he fought the gospel war. Um, the, but besides, 
Christian values have always been relatively pretty popular because they're pretty reasonable. But what has not been popular has been the gospel, which says we're also screwed up, that it took a Messiah on a bloodstained cross who had to shed his blood and atone for our sin and our rebellion in order to save us. That's not been so popular. And so the battle we're fighting is not for cultural values, but the battle we're fighting is for the bloodstained cross of Christ. And if we see the universe as the Bible sees it, we will not try in a misguided way to reclaim some lost golden age where people are in step with the values of the Bible. We want them to be in step with the gospel and the God of the Bible. And if we look at the the world as God sees it, we will see an invisible conflict of the kingdoms, a satanic horror show in our world that is being invaded if we will have it by the gospel of Christ. And this will drive us to see who our real enemies are, and they are not the cultural and sexual prisoners of war all around us. If we seek first the kingdom, we'll see the devil, and we'll see that these other people are not our enemies. They're simply prisoners of war being taken captive by the evil one, and they can only be freed if we will lift up the weapon of the gospel, which is the weapon of non-coercive, non-violent, incredible heart-melting love. That's the weapon. And that's the war. I'm a conscientious objector to the culture war. You cannot win souls and the prisoners of war, of the culture war, at the same time as you fight the gospel war. You gotta choose. And I think the Bible makes that choice very clear. I will give my whole life. I, I, and I, I know this church is founded upon the premise. We will, we, are, we will give our whole selves. It's why we exist. To, to the battle of the gospel war. But I would not give a dime to fight the culture war. I, I heard a story, one, one of our, our members actually knows, knew her personally. But if you know the story of Joan Kroc, she's the, um, the wife of Ray Kroc of the great American company McDonald's. And Joan Crock's story tells us something about the power of gospel in deed and mercy. When Joan Crock was a little girl, her family was extremely poor. They couldn't put food on the tables. And she remembered as a little girl a church committed to the gospel. It was the Salvation Army, which actually is a church. She remembers those uniformed members of the Salvation Army coming into her home and bringing groceries that fed a little girl in poverty and her family struggling in all ways financially. Well, Joan Crock was preceded in death by her husband, Ray. They had no children. And she remembered that ministry of mercy. And when she died, the heiress to the McDonald's company, Fortune, gave the largest gift in philanthropic history of $1 billion to the Salvation Army Church. Folks, that ministry of mercy that she was honoring with that $1 billion gift can be traced back to the greatest ministry of mercy and to the source of mercy that actually produced all other real mercy in our world, real one-sided, radical, merciful, gracious love. It's the cross of Christ. 
And Colossians 2.15 tells us the weaponry of the cross of Christ. It says that Jesus, having disarmed the rulers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, not by causing them to suffer, but it says triumphing over them by the cross, by the most remarkable act of sacrificial, gracious love that paid the price for us. And it's Jesus' weapon of the cross that disarms, removes the weapon, saves the wielder of those weapons, and turns us into allies of his. And it's that power that is the power of all powers. Have you experienced the liberation that Jesus gives us? that no weapon formed against us comes to us because he, bore, he took in his own body that weaponry upon himself, but then he liberates us to be part of his liberating army, to go forth in the power of the gospel that ratchets down the weaponry in the world around us. That's gospel ministry. Let's pray. Oh Lord, there are different battles that we may be aware we're fighting. Lord, may we fight them submitting to you. I just, I just pray in this moment that you would grant us clarity that we would know what it means to submit to you, to submit to your word, to submit to the spirit and temperament and demeanor of Christ, to, to maybe cease some of the things we think are battles. God, we pray that you would make us a powerful force of the gracious, winsome, non-coercive, infinite kindness and holy love that Jesus enlists us to. And Lord, in this closing song, I just pray you bring to mind that the way we fight our battles is through the cross, through Jesus' love. Would you change us and shape us and receive just our fresh enlistment into that mighty force in Jesus' name. Amen.